there's something artificial about bringing people into our clinic and into our space, putting them in our gowns, sticking them with different probes and monitors. And somehow that's supposed to create an environment where we're learning from them, where it's patient-centered, it isn't. My best learning was done at the bathtub with Joe or out walking in the street with those abuelas to keep their kids from getting shot with drive-by shootings. We have to get out there to really understand how people live their lives, how they explain their lives, how they explain their bodies, their health, their disease, before we can have any real opportunity to start to, to make inroads into healing. Not otherwise specified has always been one of my favorite phrases in medicine. Not just because it's a fancy way of saying we don't really understand the root cause of something, but also because it captures the human impulse to put tidy labels on things that remain largely unknown. In NOS, I talk with some of medicine's most innovative thinkers to probe some of these messy unknowns behind our healthcare system, its players, and the stories that shape their lives. NOS makes time for the types of in-depth conversations that may not leave us with easy answers, but that shed fresh light on medicine's toughest challenges, as well as the people envisioning its future. I'm Lisa Rosenbaum, and you're listening to Not Otherwise Specified from the New England Journal of Medicine. My guest today is Heidi Beferus, the Chief Medical Officer for Housing for Health at the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services. Heidi's an internist who's devoted her career to addressing the health issues and the life conditions, needs, and humanity of vulnerable populations. During her medical training, she began working with Paul Farmer and the global health organization he founded, Partners in Health. Her current organization, Housing for Health, is a broadly interdisciplinary team that works to provide housing and critical services to homeless and formerly homeless people in LA County and to meet the needs of people with complex health and behavioral health conditions. Heidi recently sat down with me to talk about her early work with Paul Farmer and Maria Contreras, structural violence and social determinants of health, what it really means to be a healer, the role of love in medicine, and how to truly listen to patient stories. Here, we have changed or omitted patients' names or identifying details to protect their privacy. So welcome to the podcast. Thank Heidi, you. you and I first got to speak soon after Paul Farmer died uh, in February of 2022. And when I spoke to you, I had an experience that I sometimes have as a writer, which is I listened to you say beautiful and wise things for about an hour, and then I had to choose a few sentences that would ultimately get published in a 2,500-word piece. And I remember thinking to myself then, I wish the whole world could hear what you have to say. So I'm really excited to get to sit down and have a conversation with you again. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you went to Harvard Medical School, right? And that's mm -hmm. where you first met Paul Farmer in 1991. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that first meeting? Yes. So, you know, I was born in Iran and I was very interested in taking a semester and going to Iran and working with a nomadic tribe uh, near where I was born in Shiraz because I had heard that there were health care disparities for that particular tribe just based on their social marginalization, um, particularly after the revolution when they were somewhat even further distanced in terms of their access to health care based on their traditional belief systems and culture. And I was really struggling with getting through to the Minister of Health, who kept wanting me to go into a HP chromatography lab, lab in Tehran, I think worried about what I might unearth in the, uh, in the desert. And so I was like, you know, this Paul Farmer guy, I hear about a lot. He's dealing with maybe similar circumstances in his, his battle to um, right the wrongs in Haiti. And maybe he would have some advice for me on how to speak to the minister of health in Iran. And so I scheduled a, a, time to go and meet with him. 
And uh, I remember I went in and, you know, he very dutifully listened to my story and then said, Heidi, why do you want to go to Iran? Come work with me. And I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, you don't have to go to Iran to do this work. Um, you know, and in fact, I, I want to introduce you to this woman who approached uh, Jim, Jim Kim, and me a couple of weeks ago named Maria Contreras, who's right down the street from Harvard Medical School in Roxbury. And she kind of told us off because she's like, you're doing all this work in Haiti, but less than a mile away from you, there are disparities that are unconscionable. What are you going to do for your backdoor neighbors? And he said, she's right. And I think you'd be a perfect person to go explore what she's talking about and figure out how do we create a preferential healthcare option for the poor right here in Roxbury. And I was, uh, I was bitten by the Paul Farmer bug right then and there. <laughs> and that's when I started working with him and, and uh, Partners in Health. So what was that experience like for you? You went on to meet Maria Contreras, right? And mm -hmm. then you spent, I think, both a significant amount of time in medical school, but also as a resident working in Roxbury. Can you tell us about that and what that was like for you and also how that shaped the work that you would spend the rest of your life doing? Absolutely. Roxbury and Dorchester really are within walking distance of Harvard Medical School and the bastions of healthcare where, you know, you trip over a doctor when you when you walk a square inch in, in the Longwood Medical Area. And we, we hadn't been introduced to our neighborhood when we came to the medical school and the campus. We didn't have a sense of our our context, where we were working, right? And I remember the first time going into Roxbury really entering a whole new world that I had driven through, but had never even stopped to look. And um, Maria introduced me to how disparities and injustice, um, particularly in the United States in some way, um, we, can, we can easily ignore as we drive, you know, from one end of the town to the other. And she taught me that there's a lot that we need to do to open ourselves to the realities of people living structural violence every day. And um, in Roxbury, particularly in that neighborhood, there were sort of the Dominicans and the Puerto Ricans on one side, separated by Columbus Ave with African-Americans on the other side. Um, public housing, tenement style for the poor and the disabled. Um, and Maria uh, was a community activist. She was a Dominican woman who had really gotten fed up with the violence in inner city Boston in the late 80s and early 90s with all the gang violence and drive-by shootings. And she had sort of organized her neighbors, um, gone door to door and said, hey, are you as fed up about this as I am? And she rallied these incredible black and brown grandmothers, really, to come out every evening and stand on the street corner to help kids make better choices, give a sense of resilience and strength, help them get home, provide alternatives, locations or opportunities for participation in community and um, something so compelling about her vision of, we're not going to get help from the outside. We've got to do it ourselves. And, um, and I think it's the first time I really became radicalized, I guess, um, and started working with her to form what became Soldiers of Health or Soldados de Salud, um, which was her PIH equivalent program in inner city Boston. And her concept initially was not so much around health and healthcare access, although I sort of helped bring that to the fold. It was really about why do we as poor black and brown people not have the same opportunities that someone does literally a mile down Columbus in the South End or the Back Bay? And what do we need to do? 
And her vision was expansive, right? It was about creating rotaries to ease traffic burden. It was about looking at air pollution. It was about how do we make sure that kids have access to homework and tutoring support? How do we make sure that kids are hungry, get meals um, during the summer when school is out? How do we make sure that people get insurance, um, health insurance? How do we ease the burden of poverty by making sure that people get connected to benefits that they might be afraid to seek because of their immigration status? Um, and really looking at those quote unquote social determinants of health, we didn't call it that then, but it was really about how do we address some of these structural issues that keep people from living their most fulfilled lives. And it was my second medical school. It was really where I learned about the human condition and what it means to be a true healer, which is to take all of that into consideration. And for me, most importantly, is listen to stories, really understand people's life experiences and how it develops into symptoms that we later label as psychosis or addiction, but really are rooted in that experience in that understanding that and having empathy for that and having the tools that I wasn't learning traditionally in medical school to be able to sit with that and fight it. That's really what it means to be for me, a healer. Um, but what I, you know, later learned when I went to Haiti, my favorite term, which is an accompanitor, someone who accompanies and walks with alongside, not pushing or, pulling, not even necessarily setting the pace or even the direction, but just being there, witnessing and hope, hopefully using our privilege to clear obstacles and to create options and different paths that someone can take um, and really be part of that healing process, not only for that individual, but their community and the forces that that shape them. Why don't we talk about that term accompaniment now and its origin? Because I think there's a story there that involved you that's that I think also really helps people understand what it actually means. Yeah. So, you know, so I was first sort of um, introduced to the concept of accompaniment by uh, community health workers in Haiti. And I remember it was, I think, my second trip to Conj, which was the idyllic healthcare on a hill that Partners in Health had built in the middle of a, a squatter settlement after the Arbonite Valley had been flooded. And we had brought a whole bunch of NIH researchers and muckety-mucks to this conference to talk about the learnings that PIH had had around creating directly observed therapy for treatment of HIV and tuberculosis using community members. How powerful it was not only in reducing the individual burden of disease, right, that had been heretofore unaddressed because it was felt unnecessary, but also what it built in terms of community resilience and pride. And I remember I was moderating a conference with um, the community health workers who were sitting on top of the stage in the church, basically, while all of these researchers and biomedical tacticians were in the audience. And um, there had been a lot of sort of concern about taking this model and bringing it to the United States, because in the United States, there's this idea of, we're going to give you a leg up, but then you need to figure it out, Right. There's no free handouts. You've got to show that you can do this. So we'll help you out for a few months. And then that should be just enough time for you to get your act together, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and keep it going. And someone in the audience actually asked that question. So how long does it take for, you know, this to really work? And at what point do you feel like you could you know, stop and this person would be fine to take their meds on their own. 
And I remember looking in the eyes of the accompanateurs on the stage, and they were completely confused. Like, wait, can you repeat that question? <laughs> and, I, and we repeated the question. And they said, well, the person has HIV for life. I'm with them for life. This isn't just about making sure they're taking their pills. This is about me showing up twice a day to give them a hug, to make sure they have food, to make sure that their kid went to school, to make sure that their roof isn't leaking, to let them know that they belong and I care. This is for life. And I remember the hush in the audience when they said that. It's such a difficult concept to translate here, right? Because we're all so worried about cost efficiency and sustainability and generalizability and, you know, how, what is the return on investment, right? And it was such a foreign concept in this community. And I think for me, that was my first introduction to the concept of accompaniment. And we had to modify it. I wrote NIH grants. I couldn't necessarily, when we talk about reverse innovation, suggest that this was going to be a model that worked for the United States, even though in my heart of hearts, I know that's what we need. But I learned to push back, right, to, to fight against that failure of imagination that we sometimes have that Paul talks about in this country around what does it really mean to create a healthy community? It's a lifelong commitment to addressing so many things other than that person's symptoms or eliminating disease. That's not what creating healthfulness is. So do you, to go back to your time as a medical student and then as a resident, are there stories that you remember that you think help sort of illustrate for the rest of us who don't do this work, what this actually looks like on a day-to-day -day basis to accompany people through all of these challenges, including their health, to help them be who they want to be? Yeah. When I was starting my work with Maria in Roxbury, there was this huge building two streets away from Maria that was um, sort of a housing project for uh, people who had disabilities and the elderly who were poor. And there were people in there who had AIDS and were dying from their HIV disease in the middle of a time when we were like rife with possibilities for treatment, right? People who had mental illness, people who were physically or cognitively disabled, World War II vets who were alone, you know, after careers of PTSD and alcoholism. And Joe was actually a World War II veteran that the social worker introduced me to, she said, you have to meet Joe. I don't know what's wrong with him, but he won't answer his door. And he's usually out here and he's a crotchety old guy, but I'm worried because I haven't seen him in a couple of weeks. So we went up to his room and uh, he was sitting in his chair and uh, didn't look good. Um, he was pale. He was edematous, probably from untreated congestive heart failure. There were cigarette ashes everywhere. Um, he had been trying to eat, but, you know, there were food scraps all over the place and infestation. And um, he was having difficulty breathing. And when we first entered the room, he's like, get the hell out of here. What do you want? And here I am, a little medical student. I had no idea what the heck I was doing and, you know, had been taught in patient doctor how to sort of talk to someone and approach slowly and just sat down next to him and said, I don't want anything, Joe. I'm just here to be with you. And I want to, I want to learn from you and I want to figure out like, is there anything that I can do to help? And he started crying. 
and he said, I'm dying and nobody cares. I don't have anybody. And he pointed to a picture on the wall of him as a young, you know, shirtless guy next to a tank with his buddies. And he's like, they're all dead. My family won't talk to me. And this is not how I thought I would go out. And that was like the beginning of a relationship that lasted a few months. And um, we became very close and he was really cantankerous. He, he was from down east. He was from Maine. And his pride and joy was this beat up old van that had holes in the bottom. And he would lay out a mattress in the back. And he his favorite thing was to drive up to, to Maine for the weekend and just go to the woods and just be there because it's where he grew up and he had a really difficult childhood. He was physically and sexually abused, um, alcoholic father, um, you know, sort of ran away to the army um, and came back and did sort of odd jobs, fell into sort of alcoholism himself. And I think also was like so many children who've grown up in that kind of family also was challenged with um, being violent to his own children and had become estranged and just sort of now tortured, you know, and alone. And um, we, I used to sometimes get into that van with him, Lisa, and go to Maine because it was what was meaningful <laughs> to him and just listening to his stories of his life and all of his, his hopes and dreams and where he was. And slowly after I would say about six weeks agreed to let me examine him. And mm. I remember I brought him into my clinic, which at the time was a women's health center. And he was so pissed off that here <laughs> I was bringing a world war two vet to a women's health center. And, uh, I remember I, was examining him. And, you know, at that point we had sort of like, um, I had talked to my preceptor at the time and, um, we had figured out what kind of regimen to put him on to help him with his, his fluid overload. And I remember it was my first rectal exam on a patient and I felt inside and I felt a really, really hard, big mass. And, um, after I, I don't know, a month of cajoling went with him to his colonoscopy and he was diagnosed with fairly advanced colon cancer. And, um, uh, the last sort of time I saw Joe in his apartment, I had gone to visit him because he wasn't picking up his phone and he had given me a key at this point and I, I opened the door and, uh, there was, there was bloody stool all over his floor and I tracked it into the, the bathroom and he was lying in the bathtub and he had his toe in the tub faucet and the hot water had scalded him. He was lying in hot water because the faucet was broken and he couldn't turn off the hot water and he was burning in the tub. And I saw him and I pulled him out of the tub and he was crying and he said, I knew you were coming and I was just trying to get cleaned up for you. And I couldn't turn off the hot water. And we both kind of just wept and we got him to the hospital and he died a few days later. Um, but for me, that was my first real accompaniment. Um, and, uh, 
it was a gift to be able to spend those last few months with him. And I think a lot about so many of the people who don't have the opportunity to share their stories and themselves and what a lost opportunity for those of us to connect with someone like him. And uh, I had so many of those experiences, you know, working with soldiers of health and uh, I created sort of an offshoot called PACT or Prevention and Access to Care and Treatment to, to do this sort of accompaniment work. Again, mobilizing community health workers to be uh, the workers um, and particularly focused on HIV and AIDS because the highest HIV incidence rates were happening in young people of color. And that was sort of a, a a call to action and thinking about how to form a program to address um, HIV AIDS in this community. And um, so many stories there because my work shifted from people like Joe to working with people who were addicts, commercial sex workers, immigrants uh, with HIV, a whole new um, world of um, of loss, but also opportunity, right? I mean, HIV AIDS has this remarkable ability to be a mirror that reflects our societal transgressions. And it really did then become a crucible of, of uh, learning for me personally, um, but incredible humility about um, technological advances and what they could do. And over time, seeing it going from a death sentence to now chronic disease, but also how do we make sure that everyone reaps the benefits of that technology, that gap between the haves and the have nots. And, you know, one of the things that Paul often said is, you know, if access to healthcare is a human right, who is considered human enough to have that right? And we struggle with that, right? Does a transgender commercial sex worker who's a meth user have a right to the same healthcare as someone else? But more importantly, how do we ensure that that person gets that healthcare by understanding them and their story and what brought them to that point and accommodating instead of expecting them to be compliant with our rules. And I think that's our big civil rights movement now. How do we close that gap so that everyone can achieve, you know, the health to which they're entitled and health defined globally, right? Again, not just the absence of disease or symptoms, but what it means for them to feel like they belong, to have importance, to feel cared for, to be able to find meaning and purpose as they define it. You know, what strikes me about your story, about Joe and the work that you do now, and also just having heard you speak, is that we speak so much, obviously, about structures and systems, but we talk a lot less about love <laughs> and Maybe that's because our minds are so fixated on what you mentioned in terms of how do you scale it? You know, that's always the question. And I think the thing, if anything changed in me writing about Paul, and, and I think something did, it was for the first time to appreciate that it's okay to love these people you're taking care of. And in fact, it's not just okay, it's necessary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're taught in medical school that that's bad. And I'm someone who my whole life, it's like, if there's something to be felt, I will feel it intensely. And so in medical school, I was really scared that I wouldn't be able to make good judgments because of how much I feel. And then when I talked to you and when I wrote about Paul, 
I realized that there's this huge distinction between sort of having your judgment clouded in terms of being able to weigh benefits and risks because you're so emotional and then what the role of the physician actually is in so much of mm-hmm. what we do, which is to be an advocate and to care and to know. And obviously that's possible without love, but I think love certainly helps. <laughs> so I guess my question to you is sort of what did Paul teach you about love and how do you think we can begin to bring that back into the way we educate students and trainees? Yeah, you know, um, Paul was the living example of how you are a steward of love for whom many in the world feel are unlovable because of their, you know, supposed willful self-destructive tendencies or their inability to rise above their circumstances or whatever the issue is. And I think Paul, as a liberation theologist, thought love was the most important thing in his black bag. Because most of us, when we seek healing or comfort, aren't looking for a technician or a mechanic. We're looking for someone to connect with who's empathic, who feels empathy for us and who is willing to accompany us, even if we choose to go down the wrong path. And that's what love is, that humility, that empathy, that love, that is the root to building the partnership and the trust and the hope that are the building box of restorative justice. I agree. And I, I also find myself thinking as you speak, remembering your experiences with Paul and Maria Contreras, that so much of feeling that love and caring comes from, I mean, you called Roxbury your classroom, right? And I think one thing that's sorely lacking, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, is that we think that we're teaching people to be empathic without feeling too much in this sort of check the box way, you know, make eye contact, use eye statements, nod your head. And I've always sensed that patients you know, whatever they understand about the jargon we use or that we don't use, they they sense how much we care. Like we can't hide that. We can't fake that. And so it's always felt a little bit like medical education was almost by definition misguided and trying to give us like these this toolbox of sort of things that were already made instead of teaching us to learn who these people are in an organic way, which is what you experienced, I think. And I'm wondering if there's any way to translate that experience that you had starting in 1991 to 2023 when we we talk more than ever about social determinants and structural violence and addressing some of these problems. But I don't feel in my own experience like we're getting any better. And in many ways, I feel like we're actually getting worse, at least in the hospital setting, in accompanying people. And so I'm wondering how you think, if you could design education, if you weren't in your current role, how would you begin to give trainees some of the experiences that you had? I've thought about this a lot. And I think what's really important first is establishing the paradigm. We've gotten biomedicalized. We talk about social determinants of health, but like you said, it's become very checklisty, right? They're questions we ask as obligation, but are we really listening? And then do we ask the probing questions to understand what that's like for that person, right? And listening to their story and opening ourselves up to that We've become so sort of codified and time spent and immediate sort of gain. Listening to stories in an open-ended, non-judgmental, permissive way takes time. And it derails your agenda 
as a provider, right? But we have to change the way we think about that. It doesn't. It's an investment. It's a capital upfront investment in a relationship that then can become truly therapeutic. And I think like establishing that as a paradigm is really important. We need to give toolboxes, right? The recovery model, right? Focus on not so much diagnosis of disability, but focus on skills building, right? Focus on the positive forces in that individual as opposed to the things that diminish them, which is a very different approach to medicine, right? I think also talking about harm reduction, people talk about harm reduction, but harm reduction is a principle that I carry with me all the time. I'm not necessarily aiming to get to the person to where I think they should be. They need to help define the path they're willing to go on and what's acceptable for them over time, right? And also letting them direct what's important to them and what their definition of health is, which may not be an LDL of 90 or an undetectable viral load, right? And I'll, I'll never forget this with, with one of my, my packed um, patients. Um, it was a Haitian woman who had AIDS who was dying. And when you think about HIV clinics that were just incredibly resource-rich at the time compared to regular primary care, they had social workers, they had educators, they had, you know, um, peer advocates and she still wasn't responding and she still wasn't taking her meds and they would drill into her, your CD4 counts four, your viral load is greater than 750,000. Had no meaning for her. And when you actually listen to her story, which took a long time to build the trust for, for her to tell you her story of her explanatory model for her illness and where HIV had come from and feeling like she deserved it and that the only redemption was absolution from the church and realizing that she was being ostracized by the church and that my job as a healer was to go with her to the priest, right? Or to talk to her not about her viral load, but her definition of health was being able to put on her red dress and dance with her husband in the Haitian parade again, but she was too skinny to do that. And how could we change adherence to her HIV meds to help her fill out and get strong enough to go dancing in the street? If you don't listen to the story, if you don't understand the context, if you don't open yourself up to that person's life experience, you will never be successful in achieving that therapeutic alliance, right? But do we teach people how to sit with discomfort, how to listen to pain, how to listen to being ostracized? Because it's, it's very hard on us as people, right? That active witness to suffering. And I don't think we're often taught how to do that as medical practitioners. Maybe we do better in some other fields, but I think that's really important. Trauma-informed care, right? Understanding that our, our past and our past traumas, particularly when you're working with certain kinds of, of people who are marginalized, right? Both fiscally and socially disenfranchised how important that is. And those are some of the paradigms and principles I'm talking about, right? I think the other, the other thing for me is that you only learn that through exposure in the context of the person. There's something artificial about bringing people into our clinic and into our space, putting them in our gowns, sticking them with different probes and monitors. And somehow that's supposed to create an environment where we're learning from them, where it's patient-centered, it isn't. 
my best learning was done at the bathtub with Joe. Or out walking in the street with those abuelas to keep their kids from getting shot with drive-by shootings. We have to get out there to really understand how people live their lives, how they explain their lives, how they explain their bodies, their health, their disease, before we can have any real opportunity to start to, to make inroads into healing. Um, and I think the opportunities for that kind of learning in medical school are tremendous, you know, um, but it comes with a sacrifice of letting go of some things, right? We are, we've just got this amazing wealth of knowledge, all the imimibabs and all the checkpoint inhibitors and all the different drugs and all this wonderful, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful things. But are we also giving weight to this kind of learning and this kind of toolbox? And then I think the other piece for me is for us as educators and instructors is being able to provide the support to the empathic listener and accompanitor, right? It's very, I think, destructive to put someone in a situation where you're saying, open yourself up to the trauma, listen to the story, and we don't help them process that, right? And that it's okay to not always have an answer. And it's okay not always to be able to fix the problem, but there's beauty in having been there in that moment. And I give you credit for that. Maybe it doesn't show up as a value metric in your score, but you know what? The fact that you were with that person as he lay dying in the bed, it's immeasurable in its importance and value. How do we do that, right? And how do we help deal with building that both and of being vulnerable and resilient in us as healers, which is important because we have to go the next day and be able to sit with someone, right? And so we as educators also have to be educated how to support people in training so that they can open themselves up to that and can see the beauty in maybe not getting to the LDL of 70, but maybe moving that person to the point where for the first time they call the pharmacy to refill a med they haven't taken in a year. That's huge. How do we celebrate that? I, I want to go back to this idea of being present with people suffering without breaking, because I'm actually not sure that I've ever really believed that if you let yourself feel other people's suffering that you break because for me, I find that's what almost sustains me is to feel. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's sort of like, I, I heard someone use this metaphor to describe our issues in working with homelessness here in LA County, which feel intractable. Although one thing I'm very proud of, of, of housing for health is we talk about, we're not going to reduce homelessness. We're going to end homelessness. It's a really important difference in that statement. But that there's this concept that suffering is a lake and that we can work hard and drain the lake of suffering, but it really is a river. And we're, where we choose to stand in the river, if we choose to stand in the river, as opposed to being sidelined on the bank, whatever comfortable distance away, we choose to stand in the river and as people come, we take some people out, some we can't save. But the reality is there's always going to be those inequalities for reasons that we could talk about in another podcast. And that it's okay sometimes to get tired and have your legs quiver under you and need a break because it's not a lake that's going to be drained. And it's okay sometimes to feel overwhelmed and need to rest or to just say it just feels overwhelming. But I think what Paul would say is I go back in the river because once I've been in, I can't be anywhere else. 
I love that. And once you've seen it, you can't turn your back. And that there is beauty in la lucha. I want to talk a little bit about what your life is like now in your role in ho- at Housing for Health in L.A. And maybe we can start by talking about what you mean when you say you're going to end homelessness. Yeah, you know... Um... One of the things that I, I loved um, Paul talking about was big, hairy, audacious goals. Like, don't set the bar low. And I think our commitment to ending homelessness is a testament to that. And that, again, the fact that in this country, as wealthy as it is, in L.A., which is wealthy as it is, the obscenity the magnitude of houselessness is unconscionable and it needs to end. That is a true statement. Uh, And I think that, like we've been talking about, yes, there are personal factors, but there's so much structural violence and structural racism at the root of our problems with houselessness. And I'm not just talking about the lack of physical structure, but of belonging community integration for so many of people who find themselves houseless. But it's also a societal flaw, right? It goes back to the way we're structured and what we value, this idea of individualism and that you're responsible for your own fate as opposed to this concept of us being in a civil society and being measured by the health of all people, not just a certain tier that we value or respect given our sort of bizarre template of judgment. Um, I think that it's not. Um, probably a surprise that I do this work because, uh, again, it's an intersection of the structural forces in health. And in LA, this is where health advocates and social justice warriors are committed to health as a human right. This is where we work. Um, And one of the things that I think is so interesting when you compare, let's say, L.A. County to New York, when New York is a right to shelter state where it's not as visible, is the homelessness in L.A. is in your face. You cannot deny it. We walk by it, but you cannot deny it. And what's been so compelling but also challenging is dealing with the politics and personalities surrounding the fight to end homelessness. Um, and I am daily humbled and I have so much to learn in this space. Um, and I'm really excited about the work that I do every day. And I carry Paul with me every day because his lessons resonate here so loudly. And I see him in the face of every person I encounter. Every overdose we try to reverse with Narcan, every person that we find in their homes in a fetal position after housing them, but we haven't addressed their traumas and their lack of self in every person who has borne the brunt since childhood of being a poor black male and dying of congestive heart failure at 37 in our country, living in a van with his family. This is what we're fighting and it's a good fight. Um, And I I think 
again, here is like your symptoms are manifestations of your life experience. And so much of your life experience is outside of your locus of control, right? And in the same way, listening and engaging in the story instead of diagnostication and codification and, you know, is, is really important in, in focusing on recovery and that person's strengths to help them compensate for trauma and create a different, you know, future. It's a tall task, but I think one of the things that I've really learned is, um, it's, it's, we're all in it together. And I think that's one of the things also going back to the idea of medical education is it's not just us as MDs who are going to solve this problem. We have to be able to position ourselves, not as lead, but as peers and equal partners, right? Um, with the street outreach worker, with the housing case manager, with the occupational therapist, with the DPSS worker who's trying to work on the SSI application, with the DSFS worker who's coming to visit the family because someone made an allegation of child abuse, you know, with the nurse who's doing dressing changes. All of that is so important and um, building that community of care. And that's another thing that we really need to learn how to do better in the medical field. How do you help the 37-year-old Black man with congestive heart failure living in a van? What does that look like? Well, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, so uh, I'll call him James. Uh, I met him in uh, my clinic uh, on Skid Row about four years ago. And, um, I had done some reading before he came into clinic and just all through the chart. And you know, this Lisa were, was language around difficult, defiant, challenging, aggressive, angry, non-compliant, non-adherent. Um, and all of these paragraphs of vitriol, really, I mean, tied up in medical lease, right, up against this person. And he was in the emergency room every 10 days. He would come in with fluid overload, difficulty breathing. They would give him Lasix. He would pee out like a racehorse, nine liters, and then leave against medical advice the next morning refusing hospitalizations, wasn't making any of his outpatient appointments. They didn't think he was a good candidate for an AICD, even though his EF was 10%. Um, and so gave him a, a vest with a defibrillator device, told him to wear it, prescribed him medications over and over again, which he never seemed to be able to take. Um, and at one point they had just decided clearly doesn't care about himself and had referred him to hospice. It was a 37 year old guy on hospice. And nowhere in the chart did I see a story, even from the social worker it was unbelievable to me. And I remember I was in my room, I was finishing up with a patient and I heard you know, screaming and shouting. And I went out and James was very upset because I was running late. And um, I asked the medical assistant to bring him to a back room. And then he started yelling because the blood pressure cuff was too tight and he was cursing and she got scared and she knocked on my door. And I was like, you know, just leave it alone and I'll be there in a second. And, you know, I, I walked in and he was struggling to breathe. He looked scared. And I just sat for a minute and just said, 
what can I do for you today? And he started crying. He's like, I'm here because I don't want to die. And he shared with me a story. His uh, mother had died from a drug overdose when he was little. His father was in jail. He'd been raised by his grandmother. He was running the streets from the time he was eight. Uh, And he remembers being dropped off by his, his friends that he ran with at an emergency room when he was 10 years old, when he collapsed and his blood pressure was 220 over 110. And uh, as a 10 year old, and he ended up in juvenile facilities and foster homes and jails. He met his, his woman, as he called her, and um, they started having children. And um, using his words, he said that she was slow and that they had to keep moving. Didn't get into a whole lot of details, but I suspected it had to do with concern for the children's welfare. And he had ended up in L.A., And he was living in a van in the parking lot of a hospital with his woman and four children, aged 10 months to 11. And I asked him, you know, what makes it hard for you to take your medications every day? And he said, where am I going to put them? I have a baby in the car. I leave them with a friend. When I have gas money, I drive and I take them. But that might be once or twice a week. And I said, what makes it hard for you to wear your vest every day? He said, I'm not going to electrocute my kids. What if that vest goes off and it goes through the coils and it electrocutes them? And I asked what makes it hard for you to stay in the hospital and get the care you need? And he said, the most important thing to me is that my kids get an education and that they're taken care of. And he said, I go into the emergency room and my kids are asleep and I need to get out in the morning to feed them and make sure they get to school. I can't afford to stay in the hospital. And And he talked to me about how they were making ends meet by selling his hospice pain meds. And he was paying for his oldest kid to go to a Catholic school because his dream was for him to get a college education. And that he felt bad that he had to sell his drugs, but they didn't have any income. And they did the best they could, you know, and eating fast food. He didn't have access to all these low salt diets that people were plying him with handouts when he left the ER. And when I asked him why he came in today, he said, I woke up at three o'clock this morning and my 11 year old was sitting in the front seat staring at me. And when I asked him why he wasn't sleeping, he said, I'm worried you're going to die. And he said, I can't do that to him. So you have to help me. And none of that was in the chart. If you don't know that, how do you begin to work with someone like him? Right? Everything, all the choices he made were rational and were for his family, which was his most important thing. And we were able to talk about calling DCFS, which was a really hard thing. It took me two weeks to convince him, but they got him into an apartment with his kids and he was able to get respite care for his wife, for the baby into the home so that he could get to his appointments. I was able to get an AICD in him. He was able to start taking his meds. His EF went up to 40%, right? But it's because of that ability to let go of all of our preconceptions of people and really listen and appreciate without judgment 
the choices that they're making and figure out how do I work within that reality? Because he wanted to be healthy for his kids. And so when I ask, like, how do you ask, how do you work with someone like that? It starts with listening. And really hearing and being patient-centered. My guest is Heidi Beffrose, a physician and advocate. Heidi's currently working to end homelessness in Los Angeles County by reimagining healthcare through genuine relationships and a deep understanding of both people and the structural forces that shape their lives. It's been such a pleasure to get to talk to you. It actually blew my mind even more than the first time. It's a pleasure. Anytime. And thank you, too, Lisa.